Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. Um, as you know, we are launching a new initiative called the Defiant Faith Challenge. And this month, we're focusing on what it means to live generously. And you've been around a new community, you know that we say this a lot. As you go before the Lord and listen to what he might have you do, don't pull out a calculator, pull out a cross. And think about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for our sake, he became poor. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you about who he is and what he has done as you discern how you would respond to this initiative. Uh, we are uh, continuing our series. There's probably a couple more sermons left on spiritual warfare, the unseen battle. And today we are continuing our conversation around what it means to be dressed for battle. Um, are you alert? Are you awake? Are you alert? Are you uh, awake? I see so much destruction, devastation that the enemy is causing in you, in our marriages, in our church, in our city. And the frustrating thing is that he's got many of us believing that he either doesn't exist or that if he does exist, the problems, the challenges, and the difficulties and brokenness of our world is solely about what we can see. And as long as he has us believing that it's ultimately about flesh and blood, that it's only about your spouse, about your boss, about your kids, or systems and institutions, if we keep our attention solely focused on the people, if we turn our anger, our frustration and attention only on the physical, the tangible things that we can see, and forget that we have an enemy, and by the way, he's banking on the fact that you forget that you have an enemy, then we'll waste all of our time and energy offering wrong solutions in the wrong places. Let me be absolutely clear, in case those of you have been wondering, not everything is because of the devil. Let me say that again. Not everything is because of the devil. You have anger issues? Seek help. Find community to keep you accountable. Do what you need to do. Mental health issues, they're real. Depression is real. And it's a result of a complex number of factors. But I want to say this. To, to eliminate or diminish spiritual factors that may be causing some of these things, I think is just as naive as blaming everything on the devil. There is... A real spiritual force that's at work. And by the way, that's how the devil maintains his power. He wants you to forget. He wants you to believe that he doesn't exist. Because once you expose him, once you address him, once you undress him, he loses his power. So when's the last time? I want to ask you. When is the last time, church, that you consider there's some struggle or conflict in your life? In your life? The roots could be spiritual warfare or demonic opposition. Maybe your marriage troubles isn't just about communication issues. Maybe the darkness and the heaviness that overwhelms you and overwhelms me isn't just because we're having a bad day. Have you considered that maybe your anger, your bitterness, your resentment towards what that person did years ago that you can't seem to forgive or to shake? Addictions or habits that you've struggled with for years that feel like they're just and you're just in bondage to them. The overwhelming desire to lust that seems to come out of nowhere 
the shame that cripples you or the voice of condemnation or the voice of doubt that just haunts you, that that could be spiritual warfare, demonic opposition at work. There's a real enemy, church. There is a real enemy, and he's smart, and he knows your tendencies. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your vulnerabilities. He knows the self-talk that's going on in your head. Not because he's omniscient, he could read your mind. He watches you 24-7. He knows the right buttons to push. He knows what gets you down. He knows who gets you down. He knows what causes you to reach for that thing to feel better. You have an enemy and he's very real. And he has a host of fallen angels that are banking on the fact that you'll forget he's there. So how are you going to respond? You could say, I'm paranoid. You could say, these are just coincidences. You could blame yourself. Or, or you could say, when the day of evil comes and I feel like there is some supernatural force that is out to get me, maybe there is spiritual evil that is out to get you. Are you alert? Are you awake? It's to this end that the Apostle Paul, of course, writes the book of Ephesians, right? By the way, I love the book of Ephesians. Anybody else love the book of Ephesians? Okay. He spends the first half of the book just rehearsing who you are. I love that. The first half of the book, he tells us that we're brand new creation, that we're redeemed, we're sealed with Christ. We have an inheritance. We are seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus at the right hand of God. You and I are loved more than we will ever be loved. And that truth never changes. And after clearly laying out what it likes to live, like, what it looks like to live a life worthy of the calling we've received, the tone of the entire book shifts. Because then he says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, finally, finally, he says, you're in a battle. I'm in a battle. This life that God has called us to is fought in a war zone. So in chapter 6, verses 10 to 13, he tells us, of course, about the nature of the battle, the nature of the enemy. We've spent weeks leading up to this talking about that. And then starting in verses 14 to 17 in Ephesians chapter 6, he tells us about the equipment that God has provided for us called the armor of God. Now, we've talked the last couple of weeks about what the armor is. I'm not going to rehearse it. Please go listen to those two sermons because we discover this truth that the armor of God is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Is that good news? That putting on the armor of God is not some mechanical thing that we do when we're attacked, but it is literally putting on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Romans 13, 12, So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And if you've put on the Lord Jesus Christ, not just at conversion, but every day thereafter. Now listen to this. This is in some ways very simple for me. If you've put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in Christ. When the enemy comes against you, he is coming against Jesus He's not coming just against She's coming against Jesus. That's what John means when he says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And I'll tell you the truth is, he has no chance coming against Christ. He's a defeated foe. 
Jesus destroyed the works of the devil. We are victors in Christ. We have the power and the resources to resist him and his demonic attacks. But this isn't automatic. That's why he says, put it on. Put the armor on. Put the armor on. And each piece of the armor is a description of how we actively participate in that reality of having been clothed with Christ. You have to put it on and use it. So each piece of the armor is a visual characteristics of the actions and of, uh, uh, the characteristics and actions of a dynamic relationship with Christ. Dynamic relationship with Christ. That's how we battle the enemy. So in verse 14, Paul says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Belt of truth, we said, is what? None other than being truthful with God, truthful with ourselves, and truthful with others. Let me give you an example of what this is like. Anybody ever have the example of you're just going about your day, and all of a sudden thought comes to your mind that goes, is she thinking about that about me? Are they saying that about me? And then you hear, of course, a voice that just affirms it, right, and says, you know she's thinking that about you. You know they're saying that about you. And some of us just, what, just follow those and we dwell on it, we marinate on it. What does it mean to wear the belt of truth? You bring it out in the open. In the body of Christ, you go to that person and you ask humbly, I'm thinking these things that you're saying. I think you're thinking, is it true? And the power of that speculation is broken. See how this works? Belt of truth. Then breastplate of righteousness in place. Breastplate of righteousness, of course, is rooted in the truth that we are made righteous by the work of Christ, but it's about being rightly related to God and rightly related to others. Then verse 15, with your feet firmly fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And we talked about this last week. Shoes of the gospel is peace. is rooted in the truth that we are people who have been made right with God. We have peace with God. We have been reconciled to God in Christ. And now we are called to go forth as ambassadors of the reconciliation with this good news. Our world is in need of the good news of Christ. Our world is desperately in need. Think about the time and the season in which we find ourselves in. Our world is experiencing so much pain, death, disease, and evil. And in the midst of this, the world is saying, is there hope? Is there any hope? I was talking to somebody in our church this week, or a few weeks ago, somebody I'm trying to mentor, and she said this to me. She said, Pastor Peter, somebody asked me this question, non-Christian, why are you a Christian? And she said, I had to think about that. What would I say to somebody when they asked me, why am I a Christian? Now, this is the answer I would give her. So if you're asking that, this is what you would do too. Why am I a Christian? Because the Christian story is the greatest story ever told. In a world of death, disease, injustice, came Christ, God in flesh. And through his death and resurrection, God's perfect, all-encompassing shalom has been unleashed into this broken world. Into a world of sin, death, and decay has come life, salvation, and hope. Into a world of darkness has come light, which means God will someday make all of this right. 
Your sins could be forgiven. You could have a relationship with God. The Spirit of God could come into your life and radically change you. There's infinite hope for you and me and the world. If that wasn't good enough, check this out. God says he wants me to join him in on this work. He wants me to participate in bringing heaven to earth. I have a purpose. I have a meaning. I have significance beyond just this life. One of my favorite lines from the movie Gladiator, by the way, I'm going to reference those types of movies a lot today, is when Russell Crowe says what? What we do in life echoes for all of eternity. So here's what Satan will do. Satan will do everything to neutralize you from joining God in this work. Talked about this last week. He'll deceive you and me into thinking, live for yourself just like everybody else. Life is about you. He'll deceive you and me into thinking that we're too damaged, we're too sinful to be used by God. Anybody know that voice? He'll deceive us into thinking that we can do it without God. He'll do a million things to deceive us. So Paul says what? Get your feet ready. Be prepared in season and out of season to give a reason for why you believe. How beautiful are the feet of those who what? Bring good news. Shoes of peace. Then verse 16. By the way, I said this last week. CC might be the only one that's saying, can you spend an entire sermon on one of these each? Okay. Because I'm going to go, I'm going to go through the rest of the three today, okay? And spend about 10 minutes on each, in case you're wondering. So here we go. Verse 16, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So as we've been doing, of course, Paul is alluding to the armor of a typical Roman soldier, right? So the shield of faith, the shield... There were two types of shields. You had one type of shield that was round, circular, that you see in those gladiator movies. But the shield that Paul is talking about here, as you see on the slide, was four feet tall and about two and a half feet wide. It was made of wood and leather with pieces of metal at the top and at the bottom. And check this out. It also had hooks on the side to link your shield with other shields. So an entire row of soldiers could what? to advance without exposing themselves to fiery arrows. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that, okay? Fiery arrows, of course, was what? What they used. You, and you've seen, you and I've seen these movies. They would dip it, put it on fire, and they would shoot it. Fiery arrows. What is Paul talking about when he says, put up the shield of faith from the fire arrows of the evil one? Well, faith in this context, you need to get this, is not saving faith faith that justifies us and reconciles us to god it's rooted in that all of these it's rooted in that fundamental truth of what happens at the moment of salvation but faith that paul refers to here is our present trust in jesus for victory over sin and demonic powers so faith is an ongoing confident trust in who god is and what he has done faith is confident trust in who God is, in his word, as revealed in his word, and that he will do what he says he will do. Faith in who God is and what he has done. Two things real quick. Two things real quick. I want to It's important to know who God is and what he has done revealed in scripture. Can I say that again? 
if faith is confident trust in who God is and what he has done is revealed in scripture, how, is, how important is it for you and I to know what it is that God has done and who he is as revealed in scripture? Secondly, and this is important, it's faith in who God is, not faith in our faith. It's faith in who God is and what he has done is revealed in scripture. Not faith in our own faith. Faith in our own faith says, if I just had more faith, maybe I'd be a better Christian. Faith in faith says, if I just had more faith, God would answer my prayer. No, the object of our faith is the person of Jesus Christ. Not our own faith. And that's so important. Do you know why? Because here's some really good news. You and I have all the faith we need to do battle in you already. Let me say that again. You and I have all the faith that we need to engage the enemy in battle. We don't need more of it. We have it. But we have to use it. We have to apply it. We have to take it out and practice it. The best analogy of this is found in Luke 8. Jesus is with the disciples, and they're out at sea, and there are storms coming up. And you know this story. The disciples are saying, Jesus, don't you care? All of us should be on familiar emotional terrain. Don't you care about me? We're going to drown. Do something. And do you know what Jesus says? Do you remember? Chapter 8, verse 25, Luke. Where is your faith? He asked disciples. He doesn't say, you need more faith, disciples. He says, why? Where is it? It's in you. Where is it? We think that when we're in trouble, when we're faithful, insurmountable odds, when we come to the end of ourselves, what we need is more faith, and we feel guilty that we don't have enough faith, and if we just had more faith, maybe God would. And Jesus says, you have all the faith that you need. Get it out. Get it out. It ought to be here. Why aren't you putting it into practice? Why are you afraid, Christian? Why are you doubting, Christian? Jesus would come and say, you know who I am. You know what I've done. You've seen examples of my power and my love. Where is your faith? Take it out and practice it. Use it. Why is faith important? Paul says because you need protection from the flaming arrows of the evil one. What are flaming arrows? Lies, lies, lies in the form of what? Temptation and accusation. Of all of my years of being a pastor, and as I look at scripture, his flaming arrows, especially when you see Genesis 3 and temptations of Jesus, the primary arrow of the enemy is to listen get you to question and doubt God's intentions and God's heart. This isn't mysterious. I'm going to tell you right now. The flaming arrows, his most often used tactic is to get you to doubt God's intentions and God's heart. Why? If you question God's intentions and God's heart, it's virtually impossible for you to trust him. 
Hebrews 11:6, it is impossible to please God apart from faith, trust. Why? Because anyone who wants to approach God must believe that he exists and that he cares enough to respond to those who seek him. Trust is foundational to any relationship. You know this. I know this. If you're in a relationship that's gone awry, if you're in a relationship that's dysfunctional, at the root of it is there is no trust. And you're not going to listen and definitely not follow someone that you don't trust. This is why when we suffer, when hardships come our way, trials, unanswered prayers, and all of us will experience those things inevitably. We doubt God's character. We doubt God's goodness. We doubt God's intentions. And all of a sudden, those voices, if God was good, then why cancer? If God was good, then why evil and injustice? If God was good, then why? You are deceived if you think that those thoughts just come from nowhere. He plants them in your head, child of God. That's what the enemy does. And it makes perfect sense because the whole aim of the Christian life is to follow Jesus. Which means that the entire aim of the enemy is to keep you and me from following Jesus. Because if you, if you and I are kept from following Jesus, we're just neutralized. He doesn't have to get us engrossed in some bad, nasty sin to neutralize. He just simply needs to say, what? You don't need to carry the cross. You don't need to deny yourself. You don't need to radically go in. And we will not follow someone that we do not trust. You and I will question God's intentions and God's heart, which often then leads the door wide open to temptation and sin. You know what temptation is? Temptation essentially is meeting legitimate needs that God has given in an illegitimate way. If you question God's heart, God's intentions, some of you are there today. Then you will say, this legitimate need that God has given, I'm going to meet in a legitimate way. That is my way, my choosing, my time with the person that I want. Paul says this, what? Now, this is important. So as soon as the flaming arrows come, what do we do? Don't hesitate! <laughs> We are so conditioned just to wander, meditate, those thoughts, and just... He says, do not hesitate. Put up the shield of faith. How do we do that? How do we do that? First, remind yourself of who God is and what he has done. Immediately remind... And for me, and I'm going to come back to this later, I say out loud a truth of Scripture, Okay? This is how I remind myself. I say out loud, and this scripture passage is something that I've written everywhere. You should too. Psalm 84, 11. For the Lord God is our sun and shield. He gives grace and glory. The Lord will withhold no good thing from those who do what is right. The Lord will withhold no good thing from those who do what, what is right. This is who God is. God is for me. 
He is compassionate. He's generous. He's gracious. He's loving. God takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. A.W. Tozer. He wells up with joy when good things happen to our lives. How do we know? How do I know? How do I know? Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us what? All things. He shed his blood for me. He conquered Satan's sin and death for me. God wants the best for me. He will not withhold any good from me. So when Satan fires those flaming arrows to cause us to doubt God's intentions and God's heart and tempts us to give up on God, give up on community, and find shortcuts to meet my needs, my time, my way, immediately I put up the shield of faith, faith that I already have, and I remind myself I know who God is. And I know what he has done. Then faith says, listen, so I'm not bailing on God. I am not bailing out on God. I will not quit. I will not withdraw. I will not forfeit. I will not give in. I am going to trust your heart, God, even when I can't see your hands. Even though I can't see, I believe that God sees me. And he loves me. He knows what I need. The cross of Jesus Christ tells me. And he's gracious and he's good and he gives his best to his people. So I'm going to trust God's timing because God's ways are not always the easiest, but I know in my heart that they are always the best. Shield of faith. Immediately. And yes, we'll talk more about this next week. You need to do this in community. All the verbs are in the plural. Remember I talked about that? This isn't written to single individuals. This is written to a community of people. And that shield interlocking is such a powerful visual, isn't it? You don't just fight these flaming arrows. We can't. I don't care how spiritually mature you are. You will have doubts and seasons of wondering whether God is good. And you'll question his heart intentions. So what do you do? You lock shields with other believers. And you say, I need you. I'm doubting right now. I need you. I'm struggling right now. I need you right now because my faith is shaken right now. And you share, honestly, your doubts, your struggles, your temptations. And Paul says, hold up the shield of faith together, together. Then verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The next is what? Helmet of salvation. Helmet of salvation. It was made of bronze and leather. And the obvious why the helmet is important. Whether you play sports or not, this right here, you don't protect this. You're a goner. You're a goner. I don't care how strong you are. I don't care how well armored you were, okay, from neck down. If your head was vulnerable, you're done. So immediately people go into battle. An attendant would bring a soldier his helmet and help fasten it securely. Now what is helmet of salvation? What is faith? Faith, just like salvation in one sense, is about our new birth. When we're justified by grace through faith, delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light and adopted into the family of God. And that truth right there, that salvation that you want to have in Christ, it's secure. Can I get an amen? It's secure. I'll tell you why I say that. Because there's somebody listening to me right now who is believing the deceptions of the enemy that says, you know you could lose your salvation. 
you know that if you don't behave well, that God will no longer... Here's truth. Somebody needs to hear this. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hands. I'm going to say that again. No one can snatch them out of my hands. So when the enemy tries to deceive you and lie to you into thinking that you could lose your salvation, you hold up the truth that says, in Christ I am secure. There is nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Now the focus in this verse, though, is not just about that salvation that brings us from kingdom of darkness into kingdom of light. It's rooted in that. But the focus in this verse is present deliverance from sin. It's present salvation from sin. You realize in the New Testament there are three tenses of salvation. We have been saved. We are being saved. And what? We will be saved. And most of the times when we talk about salvation, we're thinking about past salvation, right? We have been saved. But salvation literally in Scripture means deliverance. And the Bible often speaks of deliverance from our enemies, from captivity. And Paul is using salvation right here in that sense of deliverance from enemy, from sin, and from captivity. So then how do we experience deliverance from temptations and accusations, the fiery arrows from the enemy? Not just when we're saved, but every day after. Paul says what? Put on the helmet. Put on the helmet. What does he mean? Protect your mind. Protect your mind. And we come to the truth that we've talked about throughout the sermon series. Where's the unseen battle fought, church? Tell me. Where is it fought? It's right here. This is where the unseen battle is fought. Don't think hocus pocus. Don't think red jumps it with the pitchfork. The battleground for this unseen battle is for our minds, for our belief system about God, about you, about others, and about life. Why? Because what you and I believe will affect how we feel and our emotions will affect how we behave. So Satan, all he has to do is to affect and deceive what we believe because he knows that how we behave is taken care of because what we believe will affect our emotions, which will affect our behavior. That is why I've been saying what you believe, what you believe is the most important thing. And if you think this is no big deal, if you think this is no big deal, we haven't covered this verse, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the news, good news. We think that saving knowledge of God is an intellectual issue. It's not. Somebody. Coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is not an intellectual, it is a spiritual issue. This is why intercessory prayer is so vital and important. There is a relationship, and I don't even pretend to know exactly how it works. There is a relationship between intercessory prayer and people coming to know Jesus. This is why I need to tell somebody this morning, you are hearing that voice from the enemy that says, you don't have to, you don't have to pray for that person anymore. How long are you going to keep praying for their salvation? You can give up. 
you are discouraged and disillusioned because you've been praying for the salvation child of God, for that person for days, weeks, months, and years. And you are hearing a voice that says, you can stop now. I want you to know where the source of that is that is coming from the pit of hell. Child of God, do not give up. The old saints and the saying, pray through, pray through, be intentional and persevere. Do not give up. Do not, God hears your prayer. And when Jesus prayed his last lengthy prayer before the Father, he asked that his disciples would be prepared and protected from the enemy. Do you know what he prayed for? John 17, 15. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And just to be clear, he tells you and me exactly how we are to be protected. Verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is what? Truth. So in this unseen battle, are you wearing your helmet? Are you protecting, guarding your mind? How? With truth. With truth. With truth. You don't have to. Listen to me. Listen. You don't have to be an expert on his lies. Some of us right now, we think we need to know and study his lies. Did you know that people who study counterfeit money don't study counterfeit money? People who study counterfeit money don't study the thousands of ways in which people counterfeit money. You know what they do? They spend every time in nook and cranny studying the real thing. Because once you know the real thing, it's not that hard to tell counterfeit. Do you know the truth? Do you know the real thing? See, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's not that hard. What do I mean? If a thought or impression or an image, a word that comes to your mind and it doesn't align with truth about who God is, about who you are, about who other people are, and about life, you dismiss it. You know where the source of that is. You dismiss it. So question again, how well familiar are you with his truth about you, about others, about life, and about God? Do you believe the truth about who God says he is? When you start to question the goodness of God, I've said before, it's easier to disobey the will of God. Do you question God's heart and God's intentions? Do you question that he is good, compassionate, gracious, and generous? Do you question the truth, or do I believe the truth about who God says I am? Matthew 4, if you are the son of God, if the enemy, dis- enemy tempted Jesus that way, he's going to come after you and I want our identity, which is why Paul spends an entire half of his letter in Ephesians talking about our identity. There are no words known to man and woman that are more powerful than these words. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter, and I take great pleasure in you. Transformation comes when you and I claim that truth again and again and again and again. Claim that truth again and again and again and again. Child of God, don't begin with who am I. Please don't begin with who am I. Begin with who is God. Don't begin with who am I. Begin with who is God. It's only when you and I know who God is will we know who we are. We live in a culture that's told us. 
Find out who you are. Find out who you are. We live and breathe a culture. Lies of the enemy that says it's up to you to define who you are. Let me ask you a question. Are we any clearer these days about who we are? Are we more clear today about who we are in a culture that's been saying to us for years, day and night, you can tell yourself who you are. You can tell yourself who you are. are we, there's more confusion about who we are. Not less. Why? It's a lie to say I could find out who I am before I find out who God is. Who is God? Because only when I know that will I know who I am. Do I believe the truth then about others? Do I believe the truth about others? The cross of Jesus Christ tells us everything we know about others. Every person that we see has unsurpassable worth by the virtue of the fact that Jesus gave his life for them. This is the truth about others. It doesn't matter if you approve or disapprove of their politics, of their religion, of their lifestyle choices, of their sexual orientation. They're all irrelevant. Your job and my job as a disciple of Jesus Christ is to agree with Jesus that that person has unsurpassable worth and you live that up by how you live with them, how you interact with them, how you engage them, and how you lay down your life for them. Can I get an amen? That's the truth about others. Love is giving the other person what they need the most when they least deserve it. Love is giving that person what they deserve the most when they least deserve it. That is how Jesus loved me. And I am to walk in love just as Christ loved me. And lastly, do I believe the truth about life? Jesus showed us how to live, live abundantly. It's called kingdom living. Matthew 5, verses, uh, Matthew chapter 5, ver, ver, chapter 5 to 7. Jesus said, this is the way to live, to live abundantly. It's an upside down, right side up way of living that will not make any sense to this world. Hello, somebody. It's not. It stands fundamentally opposed to the kingdoms of God. And the enemy will do everything to deceive you and me into believing that the way of the kingdom, value of the kingdom, life of the kingdom, self-denial, humble servanthood, radical sacrifice, costly love is just nonsense. He'll deceive you and me. It's just nonsense. Only fools live like that. Instead, what? Pursue, the enemy says, power, success, comfort, recognition. Then you'll really live. Then people will respect you. What are we called to do? We are called to resist that in Jesus' name. And say, he showed me how to live. I know the truth about life. It's called kingdom living. Do you know the truth about God? You, others, and life. Helmet of salvation. And then lastly, sword of the Spirit. Oh, CC, I've been looking forward to this. Sword of the Spirit. And this was a light two-fitted weapon used in, weapon, in close hand-to-hand combat. It was one of those long swords that people needed, you know. It was short too, and it had, and, they, and the soldiers carried it with them. And they needed to be so familiar with this, it almost became like part of their body because you used it in close hand-to-hand combat. And Paul defines a Christian sword for us as what? The Word of God. And by the way, this is the only offensive weapon in the armor. Did you notice that? Now, check this out. Check this out. In the New Testament, the word for Greek word is normally what? Translated logos. Logos. In the beginning was the word, word logos. But here, it's not logos. I mean, it's a new word. It's the Greek word rhema. 
Everybody say that with me. Rhema. Rhema. What is rhema? Rhema is specific spoken word or words given to us by the Spirit of God to do close, to, close hand-to-hand combat with the lies and deceptions of the enemy. Rhema, unlike Lagos, is God's spoken word. And it can be scripture said out loud or it can be proclamation of God's word as in sermon or preaching. Rhema is God's spoken word that God applies by making that word come alive and active in a person's life. It's what Hebrews chapter 412 is. For the word of God is active and alive, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Rhema, God's spoken word that pierces. Now, check this out. The Bible says it's the sword of the spirit. It's the sword of the spirit. The fact that it's the sword of the spirit teaches us that you and I need to be in vital relationship, hello somebody, with the Holy Spirit for this to be effective. You and I need to be in vital relationship with the Holy Spirit to utilize this weapon. Why? John 14, 26, Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. According to Jesus, the role of the Holy Spirit is what? To teach you and to remind you of who God is and what he has done and make that come alive. That is what the Holy Spirit does. So those moments when you're just walking about and a scripture passage comes to mind or you hear a sermon, you read scripture and all of a sudden there's that conviction, there's that heavy, in a good way, powerful movement of the Holy Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit doing the work of the sword of the Spirit. So are you walking with the Spirit? Are you familiar with the Spirit of God? When he convicts you of sin, do you confess right away? When he tells you to do something, do you obey? Do you walk in relationship, intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit? Now, why is it so important to speak out God's word? Speak out God's word. Get ready, church, to that, by the way. Why is it important to speak out God's word in addition to just believing it and thinking it? One, Satan is a created being. He can't read your minds. He can plant thoughts in your minds. He can't read your minds, which means what? You exercise the authority that you have in Christ by speaking out loud his word. But secondly, this is how Jesus battled him. Matthew 4. Matthew 4. This is how Jesus fought Satan. If you want to see how rhema works, look at Jesus. Satan comes, turns the stones of the bread. He says what? No, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by the word, rhema, by the way, rhema of God. Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. He says the word, he says the word, he says the word. Why? The word of God is the spoken word. That's why it's called the word of God and not the thoughts of God. It needs to be spoken. It needs to be expressed. Amen? Now listen to the thing. In saying it is written, it is written. It is written. We're saying this isn't my word that has my authority. This is the word of the creator. Come on, somebody. Can I get an amen? This is the word of the one who knows all truth and speaks only truth. This is the word of the one who has defeated Satan, sin, and death. This is the one who has won the victory for us. And so when you and I say it is written out loud, we're standing on his authority and not our authority. 
We are standing on his authority, not our authority. And the word is made alive only by the power beyond ourselves. That is why it's called the word or the sword of the spirit. All authority we have is imparted to us, given to us by grace. And our word, when we say it is faith, Satan, our word becomes God's word. And it becomes a sword that can slay the lies and demolish all the lies and deceptions of the enemy. Is this good news to somebody? Is this good news to somebody? If you don't know God's word well, well enough to quote it, well enough to bring it forth in spiritual battle, if you are not certain of your position in Christ because you don't know who he is and what he has done, you and I are ill-equipped for this battle. This is why, real quick, I am so excited about this Fine Faith Challenge. And when we get to January, living in the word, oh my goodness, we are, we are going to be people of the word. Can I get an Amen. We will not be a church that's ill-equipped for this battle. We will study, memorize, we will read, we will reflect, we will consume God's word as the living bread of life. You and I are a child of the king. Your authority is your position in Christ. And you and I have been given, hello somebody, the sword of the spirit that is the word of God. And whether they like it or not, dark powers must believe, respond to, and obey the authority of every child of God who speaks rhema in faith and declares it in spiritual battle. Jesus says in Luke 10, 19, Look, I've given you authority of all the powers of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. Is this good news? It is written. We're standing on the authority of God's word. Oh, Jesus, this is such good news. Give more authority to God's word than our own experience. Our experience sometimes will not match up with this, but that doesn't matter. Let God be true and every experience a lie. Let God be true and every experience a lie. Let God be true and every other voice a lie. It is written, the sword of Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you how I do this, okay? Here's, so here's what we're going to do. You will see on your screen, okay? You will see on your screen various truths that I've had to wield against his temptations and accusations. And yes, I literally say this out loud, Beginning with the phrase, it is written, I am following Jesus, and I declare this truth into the powers and principalities, okay? With authority of God's word. So, I don't know who you are and where you are, but let some of these truths be a vital part of your life. Memorize it, study it, put it on your refrigerator, put it on your study somewhere so that it becomes a normal and natural part of your arsenal in this war. So, there are people here that are with me, and I've already asked them, and we want to say this out loud. We want to declare it. This isn't like, I don't know, kind of. This is declaring these truths so that the powers and principalities, hello, somebody, could hear you. First, say this together. When the deceiver says, God doesn't care about us, we say, it is written. In Christ, we are God's beloved children and dear friends. Is this good news? Yes. Next one. When the deceiver says our shortcomings make us unlovable, we say it is written. We are the beloved bride of Christ and we ravish the heart of God and make him sing and clap his hands in delight. 
When the deceiver reminds us of our shameful past, we say it is written. Everything Satan had against us has been nailed to the cross, and I am free. When the deceiver says we are guilty and condemned, we say it is written. In Christ we are holy and blameless and free from all condemnation. When the deceiver says, God has abandoned us, we say, it is written. Jesus will never leave us or forsake us, and nothing in heaven on earth or in hell can separate us from the love of God in Christ. When the deceiver says, God is done with us, we say, it is written, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. When the deceiver says we are losers who will never overcome our failings, we say it is written in Christ we are more than conquerors in all things and we are destined to be totally transformed into Christ's own likeness. Come on, let's keep going. When the deceiver says we are poor and weak, we say it is written in Christ we are blessed with every spiritual blessing and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. When the deceiver says, God is punishing us, we say, it is written, all my punishment was paid for by Christ. When the deceiver tries to make us fearful and anxious, we say, it is written, we are filled with God's own fearless spirit and filled with God's own joy and peace. And last but not least, when the deceiver says, our future is looking very bleak, we say, it is written, in Christ we have an eternal inheritance out of imaginable glory. And all of God's people said, amen. Come on, somebody. Oh, man. This is the word of God given to you and me. Satan has no choice but to obey and submit and surrender, resist the devil in his word, and he will what? Flee from you. Come on, church. Let's pray together. Oh, man. Thank you for the cross, Jesus. Thank you for the victory you've won for us. Remind us once again today that we do not fight for victory, but from victory. Satan is a defeated foe. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We can resist him, and he will flee from us. Help us exercise the faith that we already have in Christ by trusting you and believing you for the victory. Father, thank you for providing all the armor that we need to fight this battle. And give us courage, Father, to put them on and never take them off. Give us passion and love for your truth. Your word is truth. Give us renewed hunger and thirst for your word, the living bread of life. And Father, help us to walk in the Spirit. Help us to walk in the Spirit, moment by moment, sensitive to your voice above all other voices of the enemy. Let God be truth and every other voice a lie. Father, drown out all the other voices that are not of you. And I don't know who needs to hear this, Lord, but I claim this truth. I proclaim this truth right now. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Lord, silence those voices of condemnation from the accuser so that your son, your daughter can hear your voice, your voice that says there's forgiveness available, there's redemption available, there's healing available, there's grace available. Our sin reaches far, but your grace reaches further. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And as we enter the season of Advent, 
renew our hopes once again. Everything we truly want and desperately need is found in you. Jesus, you are the longing and wait of Advent. We are humbled, grateful, expectant. In your glorious and loving name, amen. Amen.